got a great sound to play in Hello? Have you ever snubbed a lady? Um, we had a technical problem. Are we on? Yeah. We're on there. Can I swear? Shit! Oh, yeah. Welcome to Crunch and Roll. I'm John Fox. I uh, did breakfast shows across the UK. Uh, more recently, a little bit of work for the BBC. Right. Zip up your anorak. Fill your favourite radio station mug with your favourite tipple and make yourself comfortable. This is a real radio deep cut. Now, Paul Carrington has had the kind of career that most of us could only dream of. He's presented, produced and managed. He's worked with some of radio's biggest names before they weren't even small names. And also, he's a thoroughly top man as well. So over the next nearly two hours, he takes us through four decades of his career from the early days working with Timmy Mallet on Piccadilly, some anti-commercial radio snobbery he encountered at the BBC, and also how he helped George Michael and Andrew Ridgely escape an overexcited mob of teenage girls. Now, before we start, just a quick reminder that if you do enjoy the podcast and you are a regular listener, we'd be eternally grateful if you could support us on Kofi. Just go to ko f com slash crunch and roll and um, I'll just say thank you to everybody that supported us so far including Adam Fitch and Matt Foister as well hello to you mate so it's a long one but get comfortable get that tipple ready because it is wonderful right through to the end and of course there's a little bit of strong language so let's crunch and roll oh yeah oh how are you hello John oh I thought I was expecting an introduction there no, no, no. We, we, we'll, we'll edit that in at the end. Um, that's how we roll. That's what we, we were just talking um, before we hit record that we we haven't physically seen each other for, it, it must be nearly 20 years. It'd be 20 years, John, since you and Tom were doing a wonderful breakfast show on Viking FM back in the early noughties. So yeah, it must be 20 years. You've not changed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're still wearing the same clothes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, do you know? I often thought because, of course, and we will we'll we'll get onto Magic Eleven Sixty One later on. But I often thought because, of course, you know, Tom and I were were two young stupid lads, and you were this. I mean, we we called you the professor because you had such pedigree as a broadcaster. Did you think that myself and Tom were just absolute idiots? Not at all. No, no. I, 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 I thought that you, you know, you were great, and uh, I'm just trying to get the the chronology, not chronology, the chron- yeah, the chronology of where you were relative to say J.K. and Joel and Hursty and Danny and uh, were, were you in the middle or did you come after that? No, no, we, we, we were after after Hursty and Danny. So J.K. and Joel, then Hursty and Danny, and uh, of course Darren Leith, and we have to m- mention Darren. So very upset. <laughs> and, and then it was myself and Tom as well with with uh, our producer Simon Green, who's one of my greatest. Oh friends dear Simon, yeah, the wonderful. And, and and also not just one of my greatest friends, but your biggest fan ever. You are his ultimate radio <laughs> presenter. You see, I'm not sure why that is. And, you know, when you, uh, this, as, as so many people have pointed out, doing this little sort of thing with, with you, um, it, it's, it's normally the other way around. We as presenters are normally interviewing other people. And so it's really strange to be, you know, to have the tables turned. And, you know, I was, uh, I, I, it's, Simon got in touch with me uh, a few years um, before I think I started at Viking, um, 
And I, I think he mentioned that uh, he used to listen to when I was doing on Piccadilly radio. And um, it's only, you know, I, I was just thinking before we came on and, you know, you just have anything, well, what the hell am I going to talk about? Um, it's, it's over 40 years since I started. Wow. And I've had to write down <laughs> all the radio stations that I've worked for. <laughs> and, you know, uh, John, there's 17 here. Wow. So hence me asking, where were you in the, you know, the timeline of uh, of, of my seeming? It looks like I can't hold down a job for more than two minutes, which I think is probably, <laughs> I think it's probably quite true. <laughs> well, let, let, let's just go right back to the start. And uh, as always on this podcast, Crunch and Roll, we, we openly admit that our research is limited. So please forgive me if I haven't got the same 17 that you have. Um, but, you know, I, where are you from, Paul? I was born in Oldham, so I'm from right. Oldham, uh, across the, uh, the the Pennines, and uh, of course spent uh, a great deal of my uh, broadcast life in Yorkshire. So I did try to keep the fact that I was from the other side, you know, quite quiet. But being from a little place called Shaw, which is on the the border of West Yorkshire, you know, the Lancashire uh, West Yorkshire border, I kind of you know sort of try to suggest that I was more Yorkshire than Lancashire, just to be, you know, to, to, be, to be accepted, really. So, yeah, I was, I was born in Oldham General Hospital, which was the place where the first test tube baby, Louise Brown, uh, was born. So there you are. That's my claim to fame. Look at that. There we go. Straight in there with a... Straight in there with a useless yeah. piece of fact. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I mean, when, when did your... Because, I mean, I'm right in thinking that you started... With mobile discos, didn't you, to start? Yes. Now, uh, like like most people um, of of my kind of vintage, you know, the, the 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 I used to do loads of mobile discos. So I built all my own gear back in. Um, so, geez, what would I be? So, say nineteen seventy seven, seventy eight. You know, I was cobbling together um, old record players, and uh, you know, trying to build my own gear and. Um, to do mobile discos. And I think I did my first one in 78. So I'd be 13, 14 years old. Um, and of course, you know, back in those days when you did mobile discos, you know, today you have the laptop and and that's it really. You know, you plug into someone else's sound system. Hey, hey, away you go. But back in, back in my day, you know, you'd have uh, crates of records, you know, and uh, you needed to have muscles of Hercules to carry these things up and down fire escapes and the the, the disco decks. You know, uh, I remember carrying this um, this this thing in, and someone thought I was carrying in a coffin, and they blessed it. <laughs> <laughs> Such was the size of the bloody thing. But uh, so yeah, that that was um, so, so that, those were my mobile disco days. You know, doing sort of weddings. And uh, you know, twenty first uh, pub gigs, that kind of thing. Now, because I was you know thirteen, fourteen, you might think, well, how the hell did you did you get in licensed premises? Well, I, I tried to grow a beard, and uh, you know, I'd always started shaving at thirteen <laughs> to, to make myself look older, uh, just to, just to get in pubs to do these gigs, and uh, you know, it kind of worked. No one ever questioned my age. You know, I mean, they they don't even question my age now. I can get on the bus for free, and which is rather upsetting because <laughs> I've yet to have my, I've yet to reach the age of a bus pass. 
<laughs> so 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 when when did the passion for for radio start was it was it always there or did, was it just the, the the obvious move to go from mobile discos into radio no it was always there uh and uh and i remember uh, um i remember my my grand my nana um she had this great big old valve radio the kind of thing that um you know, obviously you'd see in a museum now, but it would have been, I remember uh, watching the Waltons, the TV program, the Waltons, and uh, and John Boy had this, the family had this great big valve radio, and I thought, what the hell is that? And, and my nana said, I've got one like that, it's it's in the, the cupboard. So we, she got it out, plugged it in, of course, you know, this uh, all the lights you know, lit up on this thing, and it, it took uh, about five, ten minutes to warm up, and, you know, coming in there were all these different radio stations. Uh, so this would be back in the said the early 1970s, um, and I was just fascinated, you know, uh, these different voices and everything coming from 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 this box. Uh, so she gave me this thing, and it was one of my treasured possessions until it burst into flames a few years later. Because <laughs> this this thing's like from 1937. <laughs> so so what so, kind of people w- w- were you listening to that you that you admired when you were young? Well, see, uh, I would start. I would have started listening to the radio before commercial radio began in uh, in the UK. Uh, so, say the early nineteen seventies. So, let me see. It would be. I remember. I remember buying a little. Uh, my mum bought me a, a little transistor radio, which is uh, say the size of an iPhone, and it had a tiny little uh, speaker in it. And I remember listening to Johnny Walker on there doing "Pop the Question," uh, Tony Blackburn, and all those people from Radio One. Uh, and so I was kind of hooked on Radio One, and I remember hearing Kenny Everett, and uh, who else would have been uh, around at the time? Uh, Noel Edmonds was uh, was a, a huge influence on me. Um, in almost those days of Radio One, say the mid nineteen seventies, that would have been uh, you know my um, the, the thing that sort of got me interested and got me, if you like, into radio because I was thinking. You know, this this sounds like a a, a great way to make a, a living. This, you know, <laughs> dicking about on the radio playing records. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I I I did because you are the professor. I, I felt that like I should do some more research than normal for for this episode. And I know that your because your first job in radio was was at Piccadilly, which of course yes. was was a legendary station. Um, and I know that your first actual radio job was really interesting, wasn't it? Because it was something to do with tarmacers <laughs> and stairs. Is that right? Well, it, it is. That was my first paid-for job. So prior to that, um, uh, the, the, my my road into to Piccadilly Radio was like I suppose everyone else's. You know, you're bombarding the you're, Piccadilly would be my local radio station so I'd be bombarding the uh, the program director who was a, a wonderful guy called Tony Ingham at the time and uh, you know just getting the usual rejection letters nothing going nothing going keep in touch we'll put your details on file yeah like of course you are um, <laughs> but I was very persistent and you know I didn't give up and you know I was sending off uh, I used to make um, I'd built radio bedroom you know, so I'd done all the they'd done the the disco, you know, the the twin decks and everything, and uh, I I built um, radio bedroom, uh, and I'd you know I'd, I'd practice being a, a disc jockey in radio bedroom and recording these things and sending them off to to Piccadilly, getting the usual rejection. Uh, uh, when eventually, I think it was the back end of eighty two, eighty three, uh, Timmy Mallet uh, started on Piccadilly. 
And Timmy was doing the evening show, which was aimed at uh, kids, teenagers, you know, sort of hits, not homework type of thing. And um, uh, I'd uh, I'd spoken to Tony's secretary and finally uh, got an invite to go in and have a chat. And I made a complete arse of it. Because uh, the first question that Tony asked me is, says, uh, so who's your favorite radio presenter? And I said, uh, Noel Edmonds. He said, no, I, I, I meant on, on Piccadilly. <laughs> I said, well, I don't. <laughs> I said, I don't listen. <laughs> I never listened. <laughs> he said, you're serious. I said, yeah. Uh, he said, you've got a bloody cheek, haven't you? Coming in here, asking me for a job, and you've never even heard the radio station. Which, I mean, he had a point, really, didn't he? <laughs> yes. But, you know, my, my careers officer always said, you know, tell the truth, tell the truth. What a load of bollocks. You know, you just <laughs> lie through your back teeth. That's the way to get on, isn't it, really? So he said, go away. Listen to uh, the radio station. Do me another take in the style of what we do. So I did. And uh, luckily this time, uh, you know, I, didn't, I hadn't burnt my bridge uh, in the way that I thought I might have done. And on this occasion, he, he said, pop in, we've got uh, something that you might be interested in. So Timmy had been on air, I think, for a few months. And uh, already with uh, Timmy was, uh, was a fellow called Andy Bird, who was a wonderful lad. And uh, he was my introduction to Piccadilly. And Andy later went, went on to be the chief executive of Disney in America. Uh, Chris Evans, I don't think, had started at this point. I think Chris and I start, started more or less the same time. Um, but there's one or two other people there who were basically just Timmy helpers. General, you know, we were dog's bodies. We were answering telephone calls, making tea, you know, the, the usual thing. And uh, and so Tony uh, offered me, you know, this. And it was, you know, unpaid. I don't think we might have got a bus fare or something like that, but, you know, totally unpaid. But to come back to your point about the first paid for role, because I was, because I got my foot in the door, you know, and, and I was, you know, dead keen, as you can imagine. Uh, I was, um, I was doing a full, I had a full time job at this stage in electronic engineering where I was doing my apprenticeship. So I'd uh, I'd do this from sort of the start time, but that was half past seven in the morning. And I'd finish at four or five o'clock and drive down to Piccadilly and uh, be with Timmy till sort of 10 o'clock. Uh, mess about in the off-air studio to, till God knows what time in the morning, then get home and, you know, says so this this is how I kind of, if you like, did my, my, my training, for want of a better word. Uh, but because I got my foot in the door, Tony Ingham uh, said to me, he said, uh, I've got a little job that you might be interested in. I said, oh, yes. I said, and I can pay you for this. And, of course, my eyes lit up thinking, wow, the breakfast show, mid-mornings, <laughs> afternoon drive. He said, we're having the rooftop retirement. <laughs> Just to get this in perspective. Uh, when the, the roof of, of Piccadilly Radio was the car park for the Hotel Piccadilly, and you would access the, the 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 roof from ground level, obviously, and there's a ramp that went up, and then you'd park the car and go into the uh, the, the the hotel, and then down the escalator into Piccadilly Radio. So they were having the the roof retarmacked and. What um, because of this work, it would be obviously very noisy with pneumatic drills and everything. 
And so my first job was to uh, w- was to keep an eye, keep an ear, an eye open on, uh, on on what was going on. The news operation had to come from the studios because it was just too big to uproot and relocate to the hotel across the road where all the programs were coming from. So they uh, all the programs came from the uh, the Britannia Hotel. They got a couple of rooms there, you know, with mock up studios and uh, and offices and things like that. Uh, so uh, uh, just before the the, the, uh, the news would start at, uh, on the hour, I'd have to run up the escalator with my whistle, my little transistor radio that Tony Ingham had given to me. And I'd say to the lads who were drilling away, I said, right, lads, it's nearly four o'clock. You're going to have to stop drilling now for five minutes whilst the news is on. And so I'd, I'd, I'd sit there with <laughs> the radio listening to the news. And then uh, the news would say, Piccadilly News, it's five past four. da 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 and then um, I'd, uh, I'd say, right, lads, you can carry on now. So that was my first paid-for job at Piccadilly back in whatever it was, 83, 84. I've got to ask, what, what, was, it like, what was it like working with Timmy Mallet? Uh, Timmy, I, I adore. Um, I was absolutely terrified of him, I'll be honest with you. And I think most people who worked with him were because he was such a tough taskmaster. And, you know, rightly so, because, you know, it, it was good training and it, was, uh, it, it gave me and I'm sure Chris and Andy that understanding of, uh, of radio. And, you know, it was serious fun, if you understand what I mean. You know, you're messing about and it, it had to come across as entertainment, but, you know, it had to be done right. And I just remember two or three of us maybe in master control where the phones were. So we'd take the phone calls and uh, and put them through to to Timmy, uh, but I just remember him buzzing on talkback saying, "I want a caller now," <laughs> and you know that's how he would talk to us. So you know he, he ran a very tight ship, and you know bear in mind what would I be seventeen maybe? So the people of you know my kind of age, uh, I think Professor Brian Cox was around as well. You know, the, the guy who was in D-Ream? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Who said, you know, aren't stars brilliant? You know, they're like little holes in sky, but they're not the stars. Um, so, yeah, and Brian was one of the, was one of the crew as well. Um, and uh, Nick Robinson, who was, uh, or who is, I think, uh, still on BBC television, I think is their political reporter. So there's you know, quite an illustrious company there. And, of course, Chris, Chris Evans. Um, I don't know what happened to him. I'm sure he – I always thought he'd do well. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that was, uh, that was uh, my time with, uh, with Timmy uh, doing the, uh, the evening show. And I, I would be the one who did all the little jingles, you know, because uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't very confident going on air. Chris was brilliant. He used to do a character called Nobby No Level. And, uh, you know, the, the kids loved that. And Timmy and uh, Chris bounced off each other really well. Chris was fabulous in that he was you know, so quick-witted, very creative, could, you know, come up with all these scenarios and things. Uh, I was never any good at anything like that. But what I could do was more the technical stuff. And I used to write and uh, and record these little jingles. And I remember one to the tune of Top Cat, you know, the Top Cat theme. Yeah, yeah, and uh, we, I, I, re, I re, revoiced it as Top Pratt. So you know, 
because <laughs> Timmy had all these. He was the cosmic pimple, um, uh, and I can't remember the other sort of names that he he used to have, but they were all kind of self-deprecating. So the top prat sort of fitted in well with his <laughs> on-air persona. And I remember Tony Ingham pulling me up one day and says, uh, is that you? I said, yes. He said, I like that. It's very good. <laughs> <laughs> We're having a party. Oh, yeah. This is where I kind of get lost. So, obviously, you went do. on to do... <laughs> but you obviously went on to do to do your own programme on Piccadilly, but you didn't... Did you go to Metro before you did that? My God, you have done your research, haven't you? <laughs> I've done a little bit. Yeah, you're the professor. I wasn't going to mess this Jesus. one up, Paul. Because, you know, I've had to write that down because I actually <laughs> forgot that. Um, <laughs> so from from working with Timmy, again, it's having your foot in the door at the right time when something permanent comes up. Because, you know, I, I couldn't really consider my job as, uh, you know, a chief in, in charge of tarmac as, as a permanent <laughs> job. Because that's the temporary thing. So, but because, I you know, I got my foot in and, you know, sort of, mingling with the right the right people uh, a, a vacancy came up in commercial production um and that's s- appealed to me because of the sort of production element i've always you know been more of a producer rather than a presenter i never really had the confidence to be a presenter um you know as uh, i suppose like a lot of people in in radio i was you know quite shy but i you know i was comfortable doing all the production and things so a, a gig came up in commercial production, but uh, it was also as a copywriter. So you're a copywriter and a producer as well. Uh, so I did that, but then I did have this sort of, uh, you know, uh, interest in being on air because back when I was doing the the mobile discos, you know, people would be saying, oh, yes, you, you're, you're very good. You should be on the radio. And of course, they're all pissed and you know, three sheets to the wind. And, you know, but as a kid, you think, oh, they, they mean it. You know, you don't think anything, you know, oh, must, I must be very good. Well, of course, he wasn't absolutely crap. Uh, as, you know, Tony <laughs> regularly reminded me when uh, I'd, I'd do more tapes and things. Um, but so I'd, I'd, I was at Piccadilly in commercial production. And then uh, I saw an ad in the radio magazine, the radio magazine. Do you remember wow. that? Yeah, yeah. Yes, Blimey. dear old Howard Rose. Uh, and they were looking for presenters up at Metro. And um, I, I did this tape and I sent it off to Giles, uh, Giles Squire. And to my absolute amazement, uh, he called and said, uh, we'd like you to come up and do a live audition. I said, live audition? What do you mean uh, uh, I do it in the studio? I said, no, no, no you're actually on air doing uh, an overnight show. So, of course, you know, I'm thinking, oh, my God, no, <laughs> absolutely crappy myself. <laughs> now, I'd, I'd, uh, at the time I was into all these, you know, as I say, the production element, and I tried to incorporate lots of produ- you know, produce things like characters and jingles and stuff into the show. And I'd scripted every single flipping link. And of course, I'd prepared it to, you know, too well. It was to the nth degree. And I got up there, uh, up to Metro, it's uh, Longridge Swarwell, into the, the, the studios. And um, I remember uh, the first person I, I met was Nicky Brown, uh, who was a nice lad. He was doing the evening show. And I was on air at, uh, I think it was one or two in the morning. So it was obviously the overnight show for four hours. And I went on, I was absolutely shaking like a leaf, you know, 
uh, the heart going 10 to the dozen, the mouth all dry and, you know, just that sort of out of the body surreal moment where, yeah. you know, you just, uh, you just want it all to end. <laughs> and I remember, you know, the, the, uh, playing the first record, which I think was, it was the Bee Gees and Staying Alive. Uh, and then I did my first link and it just was awful. You know, I was tripping over my words. I was stumbling and, uh, and then I was, you know, getting all, all hot and bothered. The things, the things that I prepared on tape and cart, you know, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd say I timed it to the nth degree. And when it was 30 seconds out, oh, my God, you know, it was like a <laughs> snowball effect of everything uh, going wrong. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, the show at Metro was crap, basically. It was awful, awful. And the worst four hours uh, of radio. And um, uh, what, what, what used to happen was uh, Metro would uh, you do this four-hour gig as a live audition, they put you up in a hotel. You go into the radio station the day after, and uh, you'd have basically the, I suppose, the snoop, the result. And I met uh, Giles with Mick Johnson, who was the uh, the bigwig there. Uh, Mick was a very interesting man. Um, and they both sat me down, and uh, they said, well, what did you think? How did it go? And I said, well, I don't think it went very well. And went, hmm, no, it's, uh, I, th I think you got uh, a bit carried away there, didn't you? Uh, I said, yeah, yeah. Uh, said, well, never mind. Thanks for coming anyway. Good luck. And that was oh, it. <laughs> wow, really? <laughs> so I went back to Piccadilly and uh, carried on in commercial production until um, I, th I think I kind of got the bug in a sort of, I don't know, strange sense in that I, you know, I thought, well, I'll, I did this. I asked it up, but uh, it would be nice to have another go and do it. You know, to see if I could do it. Do it right. And um, I think Mike Briscoe had taken over as program controller uh, at at some stage in the mid nineteen eighties at Piccadilly. Um, and again, I was pestering him to do uh, programs. They put me on overnights just to, you know, just to do one show um to see how it went and it i think it went better it wasn't very good you know if i listen to it now i know it would be absolutely awful but i kind of try to keep the same elements now what you have to bear in mind is back in uh, in those days we were restricted as to the number of songs that we could play um on overnight programming and it was called uh, needle time restriction all to do with the musicians union and uh, the the number of uh, you know i think we were allowed something like 18 hours a day. And so the off-peak programs, the overnight shows, would be the ones that would, uh, you know, if you like, suffer. But I remember people like Howard Jones was one of the overnight musicians. So we'd have live music. We'd have some pre-recorded music from uh, people who'd done sessions. We'd have what was called library music. You know, people like Frank Chaxfield and the orchestra playing, you know, the hits of the day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's awful. But we were allowed one needle time record an hour. So what you used to have to do is to try and come up with all these different ways, these ideas to um, to, 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 to entertain the, the listeners. And so you th that was a good training ground because it, it made you, you had to be creative. You had to come up with all these different things to do. And um, I remember this. This is where I would have started uh, the Witchfinder General stories, you know, the, the ghost stories that uh, became popular later on, at both Piccadilly and Signal. And I'd have all sorts of uh, you know, guests in. We'd have regression. We'd have hypnosis. 
Uh, we'd have the Piccadilly Witch Doctor, who was uh, uh, Commander Tony Gray. Um, I mean, all these madcap characters that I used to to have. And, you know, lots of quizzes just so you've got something to do for four hours. Um, so I was doing that overnight show in addition to doing uh, a full day in commercial production. Now, at this stage, wow. I, was only doing, I was only doing one a week. You know, because I was keen and green, uh, you know, I'd be doing um, a few other overnight shifts as well. And I remember in this, the the commercial production studio, which was Studio 3 at Piccadilly, I'd put the four guest chairs together to form a bed. And so I'd <laughs> do the, the overnight show, uh, Night Beat it was called, uh, and, until five in the morning, grab a few hours kip, in the studio by lying, sleeping on these chairs and then getting up at uh, sort of seven, jumping in the shower and then doing a full day's work at Piccadilly in commercial production from eight o'clock. That is incredible, Paul. Uh, it was, but then, and then I, rem- I remember when I'd, I'd done the overnights and then um, there's a, a wonderful guy called Paul Lockett who is still broadcasting to this day. Paul was yeah. one of the, was the longest serving member at Piccadilly. Paul used to do an absolutely brilliant early morning program, five till seven. So breakfast would be seven till nine or ten in those days but the early show paul did brilliantly and uh he went on a holiday and they asked me to cover <laughs> uh so you know i was uh i remember getting up at half past three in the bloody morning to come and do this and I'm feeling like absolute crap you know because uh, my stomach was all you know body clock was all over the place did the early show and then i did the Traffic and travel on the breakfast show, and then a full day in uh, in commercial <laughs> production. <laughs> I mean, fortunately, this wasn't a regular thing. This is maybe just for a week or two here and there. But it, you know, it's all good fun. So, so when did you go from overnights to? Because you, you then moved on. Was it to late or evenings? Yeah. So uh, after my spell in commercial production, uh, there was a, a vacancy in the production department. Uh, when I say production, perhaps I should say producers department, because each show back in those days had its own producer. So I uh, I applied for a, a, a producer's job and I, I got it. Um, and uh uh, this was with uh, Mike. Mike Briscoe, yes, was the yeah. Mike was the the program director at this time, and it was to do. It was kind of like I was the weekend show sequence producer, which sounded a load of <laughs> one of these head of paperclip type titles, wasn't it? Uh, but also, I did a, a like a magazine program on a Friday night uh, between six and eight, which you know, I, you know, I, I was so out of my depth with that because you know I wasn't a sort of journalist stroke features presenter you know i was just this person who if i was on air it would be just you know messing about in the middle of the night uh you know uh, so so i i wasn't terribly good at this but then come 1988 i think it was uh and i think this is just before it might be around about the time um piccadilly split frequencies and became piccadilly radio i think it might just be piccadilly radio on on medium wave yeah. um and so uh all the producers were i think essentially gotten rid of and and absorbed um into the the programs department so i ended up becoming a presenter by default really Oh, really? I think, you know, because there was no one else to do. I'm sure there were other people to do it, but because I was on staff, yeah. you know, they needed to find something for me to do. I can't remember exactly what the heck it was I did, but I'm pretty sure 
See, I, I was on the, the the launch schedule of Key 103. Again, this was, you know, talk about out of your depth. Uh, I was uh, doing a, a, a late night show, uh, arts and entertainment and, uh, and that kind of thing with Tony Schaefer, who was um, one of my great pals at the time and still is. I've not seen him for a, a while now. And uh, we called the program The Business. And, of course, people thinking was, oh, it must be about business, you know. <laughs> <laughs> business news and things, but no, this sort of, as in show business. So ridiculous title for for uh, uh, for the offset. So this would be on on the the launch of Key One Hundred Three when it was uh, music, not music. Yeah, uh, and the the voiceover for that was uh, Steve Coogan. Really, Blimey. yeah. Steve Steve uh, was dating the receptionist at Piccadilly. <laughs> really, and, <laughs> yes, and. Uh, <laughs> And I, I don't think I ever met him. I don't think I did. Um, but he did the the voiceovers, and it was kind of I, I'm going to try and impersonate him now. It's something like Key 103, music, not music. And everyone was going, "What the fuck does that mean? Music, not music. Is it, is it music, not music? No, no, music, not music. Anyway, it's a complete disaster." <laughs> You know, it was trying to be, I think it was trying to be Q radio and a bit kind of yuppie um, to sort of distinguish itself from Piccadilly radio that was, you know, the, the tried and tested and, and loved format. Of course, you know, people are saying, well, why did you put that on medium wave uh, and not on FM? I mean, I, I, I don't know what the answer to that question is, but it was back in the day where the uh, local radio stations had to provide an alternative service because in those days um as you know uh, radio stations like viking and piccadilly and uh, metro would have had an fm service and a, an am service as well am frequencies and so it's a sort of lose it or use it scenario so uh because radio one bbc radio one were launching their fm uh transmitters across the the uk in 1988 it became important for Piccadilly to be on FM. Uh, and so um, they they opted to provide two separate services on uh, AM, one on AM and, and one on FM, uh, in order to retain both frequencies rather than run the risk of losing one. And, of course, the fear was that they would lose the FM frequency and just be left with 261 or 1152, whatever it was called. So yeah, that was uh, that was 1988, uh, and, and then I think I lasted on Key 103 the first time round. That's right. They they uh, they thought, well, this is a disaster. It's awful. No one's listening. Um, and then they put me back on Piccadilly Radio, and then that's when I did. That's when I started in the, the late night show. Yeah. And this is when I created the Funster. The Funster um, show, yeah. Yes, uh, <laughs> one of those things I look back with great embarrassment about. Really? Yeah. What? Why? Uh, well, I mean, just think of the the name for a start. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it, at, at the time, you know, I mean, it, it probably didn't sit too far out of place, and and people still talk about the Funster Show now, Paul. Well, uh, I, I, yes, they do, and and I, I I'm always. Um, perplexed as to why this is i think because timmy mallet was my uh, uh i suppose my inspiration 
and uh, the person who I would have looked up to most in the early in my early days of, of Piccadilly. And Timmy, of course, did the uh, the evening show. And I kind of modeled this funster show on what Timmy was doing. I suppose it's a bit like, I don't know, elements of Steve Wright in the afternoon as well with all the, the zany characters and jingles and, and stuff. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I did that um, for, I think it was, it was only about a year or so. Um, and then I was back on Key 103, but doing afternoon drive. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that so all, that was awful as well. Was it? Was no, it, it was. It was crap. It was absolute crap. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, 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 make, I make no bones of the fact, John. I don't know how the hell I got a job in the first place. And good news. I mean, as a producer, I was fine. You know, I was comfortable doing that. And, you know, without blowing my own trumpet too much, I thought I was very good at that. Uh, but as a presenter, you know, I, uh, I just thought I was absolute crap. And, uh, you know, any tapes that I have and I listen back to, you know, I, I, I just cringe and wince with embarrassment, but I keep them as some sort of self-flagellation. <laughs> <laughs> well, do, do you know, I, that's, that's, you saying that has really surprised me. Not that you, you, you ever came across as somebody with an ego, certainly not, but that you obviously, you, you were embarrassed by what you did. Yeah, yeah, gross, very embarrassed, um, you know, and it's, uh, I don't know, I, I, then I have to remind myself, well, look, you were only in your 20s, you know, it was the 1980s and uh, and people were all, you know, looked like they'd been in a, an explosion in a paint factory, you know, all wearing day glow colours and bright red glasses and all that kind of thing. So I suppose it was, um, it was definitely of its time. Um, but then... Uh, uh, then it, it all went tits up at Key 103 because um, you have to remember here, John, that this is, this is over 40 years ago when I, when I first started. So there's been a, a lot of water under the bridge. I remember Transworld uh, under the ownership of Owen Oyston taking over Piccadilly. And I mean, you know, people would make no secret of the fact that that was the, the nail in the coffin for Piccadilly. That was the death knell, really, once... Um, once Piccadilly Radio floated and became Piccadilly Radio PLC and left itself wide open for for, for takeover. So Transworld Communications uh, with Owen Oyston, you know, that, that was the beginning of the end for a few people. So, uh, and I remember uh, being on Key 103 and being told that I was no longer needed and I, you know, I took it terribly, you know, really badly even though I didn't deserve to be on air at all. And, you know, as much as Owen Oyston uh, wouldn't have his fans, he would, I think he was right. You know, I shouldn't have been on in the first place. So... <laughs> but it's, it's, I mean, that was the station that you wanted to be on. So to to to, to leave, it, it's, it's hard, isn't it? Well, it is. But, you know, the bizarre thing is, John, they didn't actually sack me Um they took me off air, but they wanted me to become uh, not head of music, but they wanted – this is when Selector was just coming in. And they wanted to – because by the, at this stage, the presenters were playing all their own songs. So, you know, on the afternoon show and every every program I did, I was playing all the, all the stuff that I wanted to play. Yeah, we'd have the A list, the B list, and you, you know, the idea was that you'd – You'd have the A, Bs, and Cs in the studio on seven-inch vinyl. 
you yeah. pick from the front, put to the back, pick in the you know, so they <laughs> supposedly get some kind of even rotation, which was of course absolute bollocks because you just click through. I'm not playing that; it's crap. Oh, I'll play that one there. <laughs> you know, um, so you know you're, you're sort of uh, playing all the stuff that you wanted to really. But then they wanted to bring in uh, RCS selector, and of course they had no one who. Um, really who knew anything about it and they thought because i didn't jesus don't know why they thought i would be any good at it but i uh i, I think it might have been um some i wouldn't have been a promotion but certainly it would have been useful had i have you know bitten my tongue and swallowed my pride and actually stayed there to learn how to you know, to become a sort of head of music and, and learn what was to be the future. You know, I'd already mentioned that I, I I didn't really relish the thought of being on air, but by this stage, you see, I'd caught the bug. Hmm. And, you know, doing gigs and things like that where people are coming up to you and they like what you do and you're getting a great reaction, you think, well, that's, that's something obviously I found that, that I'm good at. So during your time at, at Piccadilly, you must have... You must have met some some celebrities, and we're we're not talking about the, you know we're not talking Z list. We're talking A list celebrities here. That was the thing about Piccadilly. Um, you know uh, the, the 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 level of guests that uh, Piccadilly would have attracted, because you know again back in the day people wouldn't uh, be doing ISDN interviews. Uh, they 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 wouldn't be doing down the lines anything like that. If they if they did an interview, it was either there in the flesh in the studio, or you would go to them. I, I remember, for example. Uh, United International Pictures calling me uh, to say that A Fish Called Wonder was the new film from John Cleese and would I like to go around to his house to uh, to interview him. Wow. So I... Uh, <laughs> now, the funny... I'd never actually seen this film at all, you know, because it's, it's brand new and the, this... Uh, so this interview opportunity came and, I, and they sent me the bump, the press release, and I was reading this stuff on the train on the way down to Houston. And this car picked me up and took me around to John Cleese's house. And uh, you know, I was obviously in awe of the Faulty Towers and Monty Python legend. And um, he was the nicest man you could meet. Um, and I remember saying to him, uh, what, a lovely, what a lovely house you have, John. He said, you know, I bought this off Brian Ferry. <laughs> so not only have I been in, in John Cleese's house, I've been in Brian Ferry's house as well. So we chatted about Faulty Towers and Monty Python. And he said, are we going to talk about a fish called Wonder? I says, I suppose we better hadn't we really, you know, trying to blag my way through it. And, uh, you know, uh, fortunately, he didn't suss that I hadn't seen it. Or if he did, he was very kind and um, and didn't let on that uh, that he knew that I hadn't really seen the film. But we, you know, we, we got a nice program out of that, you know, sort of, a, 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 I suppose, a three-parter, Faulty Towers, Python and A Fish Called Wonder. But... Um, but people coming into the radio station, I remember walking out of, uh, I remember walking into the, the radio station as uh, Charlton Heston was leaving, as Elton John was arriving. <laughs> and uh, I remember the, the, the situation with Elton, Elton John um, coming in for the interview. Uh, we went in the studio and he was full of a cold and he brought in a, a like a, 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 an Asda bag with all these um, uh, Kleenex tissues and uh, lockets and cough syrups and things and went into the studio did the interview and uh, he left and um i noticed that he'd uh, he'd left his bag of all these these goodies and uh, and i thought i could sell these El elton john's lockets here how much would i get for that 
But then 10 minutes later, Pat on reception called and said, Paul, Elton's in the reception for you. Uh, has, has he left his cough sweets in the studio? <laughs> <laughs> the, the multimillionaire Elton John, he could have just nipped downstairs to tell his news agents and uh, picked up another uh, you know, packet of lockets. But uh, So, yeah, he came back into the studio to get his... Uh, his stuff, but I think one of the, the most surreal moments was when I was working with Timmy, and um, Timmy would have had all the uh, again the A-list pop stars of the day in. So you th- we're talking here, sort of eighty three, eighty four, eighty five. I re- remember one occasion where uh, George Michael and Andrew Ridgely came in. Uh, Wake me up before you go go was number one, or it had been number one. Uh, so this would be 1984, the summer of 1984, and um, Sony Music, um, I think, was the, the the record label, and they were promoting a, a new upcoming artist uh, who they wanted to get on the program. And um, and Timmy says, "Well, yeah, we'll interview this guy as long as you uh, bring in George and Andrew," thinking that the record rep would just say, "Yeah, well, that's not going to happen, Timmy, is it?" Anyway, sure enough. George Michael and Andrew Ridgely came along and um, d- did the, uh, the, the, the did the interview um, with this young fella, who I felt sorry for really because you know people are only really interested in uh, in, in George and Andrew. Now, of course, um, Piccadilly Radio was in central Manchester in Piccadilly Gardens, and within minutes of people uh, hearing that George and Andrew were in the studio, Piccadilly Gardens was teeming with. Teenage girls. You couldn't, you know, as far as the eye could see. And uh, the boys were were kind of a bit panicked by this. Um, and they, 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 they said to me, uh, is, is there an alternative uh, exit? Because uh, we, we've walked up from street level. I said, well, I've got my car parked on the roof. Um, I'd, I'd give you a lift if you like. And George says, would you mind? They're fully expecting him to say, no, it, it's okay. So there we are. We're in my clapped out Ford Escort. Uh, George Michael in the passenger seat, Andrew in the back uh, with this this poor fellow whose name, uh, to, to my embarrassment, I can't remember. <laughs> and uh, as we're driving down the, the ramp to street level, uh, these uh, these young girls spot the boys in the car. And it's like a scene from The Beatles, A Hard Day's Night, where all the, these these young girls start rushing to the car and they start rocking it. George, Andrew, George. And, um, you know, I said, I'm sorry about this. It happens all the time. <laughs> um, so, so I'm tooting the horn, you know, get out of the way, get out of the way. And uh, we, we got through the traffic lights and I said, look, I'll just spin around the block a few times just so uh, we, you know, we, we, we lose them. And they were staying uh, across the road there at the the hotel, uh, the Britannia Hotel. So I, I I dropped them around the corner, and George uh, said, "He said that's very kind of you." He said, "Look, we're having a few drinks later. Uh, I think it was his twenty first birthday, or it had been around about that time." He said, "Do you want to uh, you and Timmy want to pop up for a few drinks?" Now, of course, I should have said, "Yeah." In actual fact, I said, no, I've got to be up for work early tomorrow morning. Thanks anyway. <laughs> oh, yeah. So from Piccadilly, I uh, I went to a station in Stockport, KFM. Is that on your list? 
No, do you know what? It's not. I've got Sigma yes. 1 next. <laughs> you stumped me already, Paul. All right, so, so you know, tell me about you, this then. You know, this is going to be a long... Because we're only on station number two of 17. <laughs> <laughs> so KFM um, was the station that uh, Carolina Hearn and Craig Cash would have been on. Yeah. And it was uh, it was a station, a music station for Southport. And it was an independent station, and it was, uh, um, I think, just for Stockport and parts of Cheshire. Um, Signal had just acquired it, and they wanted to uh, make it more mainstream. Um, and uh, I, you know, I was back on doing the late-night Funster show on KFM, and I got all the old gang back with me from from the Piccadilly days. Um, and... Uh, and then I think I was only there for about two or three months before they said, look, we're going to ship you down to um, Stoke-on-Trent. So um, the frequency that KFM were occupying, uh, I think it was I think it was 96.9. Was it really? Blimey. <laughs> I think it might have been. But there you go. I could be talking crap. Um, <laughs> then it was, and it was a rebranded Signal Cheshire. Right. So... Uh, so I, I, I went down t- uh, to Stoke-on-Trent to do the, the late-night fun- Funster show on both um, Signal Radio and Signal Cheshire. And I think it, there was another station as well, Signal Stafford. So there was, uh, there's three on uh, on the Signal network. Uh, and did the, uh, the, the late-night uh, show for a year. And this is where I would have had all the... Um, I think the the best reaction because I kind of done it for a, f- a few years on and off. You know, I'd kind of honed this this format, and this is I think this is where it kind of became popular and developed a bit of a cult following. Um, I think mainly, not I don't, there's no think about it. It's definitely because of the people who I was lucky enough to be working with. Those people like Peter Morgan, uh, who you might know. I think Simon, you're producing yes. those, uh, Peter. So yeah. Peter would have done all the the characters for me, a lot of the characters. Uh, we had Dirty Gertie, who was one of my regulars from Manchester. Um, uh, there were the Witchfinder General telling the ghost stories at midnight, um, and all sorts of different people coming in to, uh, you know, to, to 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 help out with the program. And it was just it was a bit of it's just a free for all, you know. And um, it's it's a great time, you know, doing doing that show. I, uh, I I ended up doing breakfast on Signal One, and <laughs> um, yeah, and and it, I, I I moved from BRMB to do Signal One, and they're an interesting audience, but if if you win them over, they will love you. Now, th- yes, you're absolutely right, and I had three and a half blissfully happy years in the Potteries. I absolutely adore. Um, Stoke on Trent and uh, and the area and uh, and Staffordshire and Cheshire. Um, I think pr- mainly because of the people and the, the the reaction that I would have got. Uh, the, the the late night show um, was it developed, developed a cult following, not just with the kids and teenagers listening under the bedclothes, but the people who will be you know working uh, late at night. I remember um, uh, on one occasion this, uh, this this someone came to the door. Um, and they presented this beautiful uh, Funster Towers that they made out of, you know, the, the pottery thing, and uh, and they decorated it, and it was absolutely incredible. Um, and this was these are obviously not kids who'd made this, um, 
And I, I remember I used to do lots of gigs back in, in those days. It was the time when karaoke became popular. Right. And I was, uh, uh, I, I was doing stuff with uh, Colin Cook, who was again at Piccadilly, but also had been at Signal. And, and Colin set up his own karaoke business. So I was doing loads of gigs with Colin um, and, you know, meeting people. And karaoke back in those days, you know, uh, yeah, you got the piss heads who would swing the microphone around and nearly have someone's eye out. But you'd also get some really good singers, you know, it's uh, top-notch singers. Uh, who uh, it's a bit like, I suppose, I suppose, the forerunner of The Voice or The X Factor or something like that. So uh, doing those uh, those karaoke gigs connected me with the the audience. Um, so I was doing those at the weekends. Then uh, after the late night show, I was only doing that for about nine months, I think. And then they put me onto the uh, evening show, which obviously was squarely aimed at the hits, hits not homework, uh, kids um, thing. And did that for a year. And then onto the breakfast show, um, uh, when they, uh, I think they then split their frequencies. So I would be on Signal, they call it Signal 1 or Signal FM or whatever they called it. I was on the FM thing and then Signal Gold was their other one on the medium wave with uh, Doug Wood. The most wonderful Doug Wood. Funny, funny man. So, uh, yeah, and then Peter was with me on that, Peter Morgan. Uh he would be doing traffic and travel, uh, but he was based up in Altrincham. Uh, I think it was that's where the AA Roadwatch headquarters were, um, and 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 he would be doing inserts not only into my program but uh, about maybe about half a dozen others. You know, um, uh, the BBC's services and Piccadilly and whatever it was uh, that he was doing as well. Uh, but I involved him, um, you know, doing various uh, characters and sketches and stuff. And to my amazement, the program won a Sony Award. And I think I'm right in saying that it was the only Sony Award that Signal ever won. Really? Uh, I think so. I could be wrong. And I'm sure there will be someone who would come quickly and say, oh, no, I think you'll find that John Fox won one. <laughs> no, I certainly didn't win one there. I mean, I rarely won an audience, let alone an award at Signal One. So, because um, you did breakfast, they put the late night Funster show on on network as well. Um, yes, so you're on, on a group of stations. Yeah, and, and he, so you spent some time in Stoke, and then I see. I never knew this. The, the, the next, I might have. We'll have to compare notes here, Paul. The next <laughs> station I've got down is is Viking. I didn't realise you went to to Viking. Yeah, well, uh, from Signal again, I was sacked. Uh, there's a, there's a, a history here, isn't there? There's a, there's a pattern. <laughs> it's the same for all my guests. Don't worry about that. But, Paul. It, but it, it's it's as if you know you're finally being seen through. You know, you're sort of you're getting away with it, and you find out that really someone sooner or later will go. Yes, he's crap. The hell is he doing? So, but I, you know, I was a cocky, arrogant little shit, and Were you? you know. I, 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 honestly, I, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't like myself. You know, if I met myself in the street now, uh, I, I'd cross the street probably to avoid me. Um, and I, I was. I suppose I was trying to be too clever. You know, just trying to be cocky, trying to be funny, and uh, you know, just out of my depth. Really, you know, I could do all the messing about and the sound effects and creating um, scenarios and, and 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 things. I, I've always loved the theatre of the mind, creating images with sound. And 
the thing that blew up in my face was when Michael Jackson was accused uh, of what he was accused of and uh, with a young fellow called Geordie Chandler. Now, this would be all over the front pages. And uh, as part of uh, the program, you know, you look at the, the papers and you go through the headlines and what's reported on the front page of all the papers. And of course, it was on the front page of everything. And so I was doing the paper review. And um, I remember saying, uh, well, I think this is all nonsense. I don't think any of this is true. I, I think what's happened here is that this lad's parents have seized an opportunity to uh, to get some money out of a rich and famous pop star. And then, oh, just a second, there's someone at the door. The door opens. And then the introduction to um, one of Michael Jackson's songs, uh, which starts off, I just want to lean next to you for a while. Your hair is so soft. Your mouth is... Of course, during the, the gaps in this, I was going, get off me. I'm reading all about you in the papers here, Michael. <laughs> and so the record then starts and plays. And for the only time ever in my three and a half year career at Signal, the XD rang. rang. <laughs> I thought, oh, who's this? I thought, oh, it's, it, I picked it Hello. And it was John Evington, the program director. Yeah, yeah. His voice quivering with rage. He <laughs> said, everything all right, John? He said, look, don't you ever, don't, don't you ever do anything like that ever again? <laughs> I said, what's wrong? He said, look, we need to have a chat. Uh, my office at 10 o'clock. So uh, he, was, he was still, you know, furious that I'd done this. Um, and it basically, I, I went into his office and he said, that I can't let that go. Um, you're sacked, basically. <laughs> now, you see what what people don't understand, I suppose, about those times is that we had no legal training. You know, we had no media training, and you remember of uh, the 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 the, uh, the the Harold Shipman case. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 Preston Crown Court, where the presenters of the breakfast show on Red Rose very nearly landed a mistrial for Harold Shipman because of certain things that they said on air. And this was the catalyst, that particular instance with the, the Shipman case and the people on, on Red Rose Radio was the catalyst for presenters throughout EMAP, in fact, every broadcast outlet to go on legal training to be told basically what you can and cannot say. And of course, you know, the fact that something is printed on the front page of the sun and you repeat it on air, you say, well, it's, it's on the front page of the sun. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not you know, it's no defense. You cannot repeat an untruth or an unsubstantiated allegation. Uh, and if, you know, as, as an arrogant little shit of a presenter, you say, well, it's free country, it's free speech, I'll say whatever I want. No, you bloody well won't, pal. <laughs> Can't do it. So, you know, that, that's why uh, the people had to go on, um, you know, the, the media training. So, you know, I learned the hard way uh, uh, and, and I was sacked. Not that I'd said anything defamatory, I don't think. It's probably just in very bad taste and just <laughs> reacting what I thought was, you know, a bit of a wheeze, really. Yeah, absolutely. 
so I was fired from there, and then I went to Buzz FM in Birmingham. Right, okay. Which was a, a dance station, a very small station, uh, but it was, it was wonderful. It was run by a, a radio legend by the name of Chris Carey. Uh, himself for uh, Spangles Muldoon on the pirate ships in the 1960s. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, so Spangles Muldoon was my boss for a, a few moments. And I, I think I did this for only a couple of months um, before going to Viking. But um, but Buzz was a great radio station. It, it really had such a, a buzz about it. It was a dance station. And, you know, the production and all that kind of stuff was just, you know, shit hot. It was wonderful. Um I remember there was uh, there was one voiceover that went hitting, getting, moving, grooving, shaking, quaking, having, jabbing. Here's a buff in his buzz FM. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's Well, I'm all for being open-minded, but I'm not all for discussing this live on air. Thank you. We are profoundly uh, sorry. Oh yeah. All right, so let's let's move on to Viking because um, you, you you now move to Yorkshire. Um, of course, I'm a whole lad, so I'd say the real part of Yorkshire. And you do afternoons on Viking. Uh, I, I, obviously, because I was out of work, I was sending tapes off left, right and centre. And um, and Steve King uh, asked me over for a chat. We met in Manchester, I think. And uh, he uh, he was saying about uh, the, the Metro Radio Group and uh, they got all these radio stations. And they're looking for someone at Viking FM. And I thought... Uh, Oh, I wonder if it's the breakfast show because I just picked up the the Sony Award for the the, the breakfast show, um, but no, it was for afternoons, um, and I had a, a a wonderful time at Viking. Um, you know, great show to do, isn't it? You 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 of all people, John, know the benefits of being on afternoons, given the social life of uh, <laughs> of, of Viking. You know, where the dick and pussy was Studio 3, you know. <laughs> Paul, I, I feel that some, well, I think Joel Ross might have explained the uh, the DMP, but again, we should just point out that that's the name oh, of sorry. the yes. Whittingham and Cattery. Sorry, I forget about that. It's uh, terribly remiss of me. I'm, I apologise. <laughs> it's just occurred to me that the, <laughs> there's a double entendre there. Um, yes, the Wheatington and Cat was uh, was given the name the, the dick and pussy. Um, by probably everyone who ever frequented it. Uh, and that became sort of Studio 3, really. And I just remember, as soon as the programme finished, piling on into the, the, the DMP, uh, where there'd be people like uh, Simon Logan would have been on breakfast, Trevor James on drive, uh, Derek Flood, Del Boy, hey, 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 uh, was on mid-morning, me on the afternoons. Um, and it was, a, it was a great time, a, a great crack with uh, with everybody. But, you know, Simon was on breakfast and, you know, I'm sure he did most of the programmes, Three Sheets to the Wind. Uh, and I, I just remember, uh, I remember covering for him. He went on holiday one, uh, for whatever it was, a week. And um, um, Paul Hogan was my was was on with me doing traffic and travel. Uh, and I just remember, I was, abs- I was still hungover. I was I was throwing up in the bin in the corner of the studio. I was as that uh, hung over doing doing the breakfast show, um, and uh, but that, that was the life there. I remember, you know, my my waistline was twenty eight inches when I started at Viking. Within a year, it was uh, thirty two inches, uh, which <laughs> just filled out considerably more. Even you know, a few years later, 
but g- g- a great crack. Even you know those days, Viking. I think Viking and Piccadilly were probably the places that I had the most fun. The next move is really interesting because you you move to Minster FM. Um, <laughs> you, you do breakfast, but you also become the gaffer, Paul. Yeah. Uh, now, um, I don't know if you if you ever had these feelings, John. Of uh, this can't last. Someone is <laughs> this can't. La-. And of course, because of what I've, I mentioned before, you know, this sort of this history of <laughs> someone sacking me on a what seemed to be a regular basis. You know, I thought, well, if I'm the boss, <laughs> I'll just sack myself if I don't like the show. Wonder. Um, so I was thinking of of, uh, of the future and um, thinking, you know, uh, uh, what would I, what will I do? Because I can't continue being a presenter uh, at infinitum. And I thought, well, I'll try my hand at, uh, at radio management. I, a friend of mine, Nigel Reed, who I knew at Signal, uh, he was the sales director and he'd gone to Minster as sales director. And we, we'd kind of, you know, met up frequently. And um, whilst I was still at Viking and he said, uh, Tony Fisher, who was the program director at, um, uh, at Minster, was leaving. And uh, would I be interested? So I I, I met up with uh, uh, John Darch, uh, who was the managing director. Um, and uh, he uh, I got the gig, basically. But I was, uh, it was wonderful because I was interviewed by Richard Whiteley. Of course. I mean, R- Richard Whiteley, who was, he was the mayor of Wetwang, wasn't he? That's right. Yes. <laughs> Wetwang weekend television. So, yes. Um... <laughs> do you know Chris Johnson? No, I don't know. Oh, oh no, I do, I do know Chris Johnson. Forgive me. I do know Chris. Yeah. Chris is the funniest man you will ever meet. And you know, is someone who I would heartily recommend that you you got on uh, on on your podcast. He's a, a, a naturally gifted, funny man, very very funny lad. But anyway, yes. Yeah, so uh, Richard was the mayor of Wetwang. Um, so I, I spent uh, only a, a brief uh, time at Minster um, for the reason you pointed out. Really, I suppose I was the breakfast show presenter and program controller as well, and basically it was bloody killing me. You know, yeah. doing like so, I'd be up at whatever five to six. <laughs> be at six, um, and then in in the the office uh, until sort of six seven at night. And you know, yeah, it was a great time, a, a good time. But um, and then I got a call from Steve King, who'd given me the job at Viking. He said, how's things going? I said, well, apart from being knackered, uh, I'm okay. He said, would you be interested in uh, in joining us at uh, at The Pulse? Uh, we're looking for a breakfast show presenter. And I think it was Elliot who was doing the program at the time. And he was going on to maybe BR&B or somewhere. Um, and so I uh, I thought, ah, you know, just doing a show and go. Yes, I'll, uh, I'll meet up with you and uh, that would be great. Uh, so yeah, I met up with Steve and Steve Martin, who was the program controller at the Pulse, um, and got the gig. But it uh, it went it it was it didn't go well at all. I mean, it was awful, <laughs> awful. Why why was that? Um, my domestic life at this time ah, was right, okay. yes was uh, wasn't great. And uh, the the young lady who I was living with at the time was um, was very jealous, and I was pre- co-presenting the Pulse Breakfast Show with the wonderful Debbie Lindley. Now, because Debbie is a lady, 
then it was automatically assumed by my partner at the time that I would be having an affair with her. And so even before I started, you know, she she had already convinced herself that we were, you know, we were uh, getting bouncy bouncy with each other. Um, which you know wasn't wasn't the truth at all. There's nothing, and, uh, and 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 so you know I was getting in the, in the neck from her. So it was just I was on a hiding to nothing, really, John. It was just an awful time. Um, Steve Martin, um, I think, realised that he made a mistake in hiring me because on air it it wasn't good. It, no, it it was. Let's be honest. It was crap. It was awful. <laughs> Um, and then I saw a notice on the notice board, Programme Controller Vacancy, Great Yorkshire Gold. Uh, and I'd only been at the Pulse for three months, if that. Uh, and I, again, I saw this as my exit. So I applied for this. And again, met up with Steve King and Mick Johnson, who um, I'd obviously I'd met uh, many years before at Metro when I did the ill-fated overnight demo at, uh, at Metro Radio. Yeah, yeah. Met with Mick and Steve and... Uh, again, I got the gig. And again, another bit of a poison chalice in that my domestic situation hadn't improved because it was a uh, a, a big gig, you know, being a program controller within the Metro Radio Group. Um, you know, you, I, I, I wasn't on air. And, uh, you know, so I was in charge of these disparate egos. And uh, again, that wasn't a particularly happy time. Um, the station was hugely successful, thanks mainly to a wonderful guy called Steve Parkinson, who would be my predecessor, uh, who was my predecessor, rather. I took over and inherited a great radio station, and I put my own stamp on it, and uh, we had some great audience figures. And I remember Dee Ford, who was the uh, who was the MD, I think, of um, Hallam FM, because uh, uh, Great Yorkshire Gold would be based in Sheffield. Um, and I remember her... Uh, being amazed that the the figures were so good and the, she couldn't understand why the listening hours were 19.7 average hours 19.7 which is unheard of apart from you know yeah. radio stations in say guernsey or jersey or somewhere you know like that where you you've you've obviously you would expect a, a, a great listenership but of course you know um, once emap took over the metro radio group again it was a high you know it's it's just a question of of time before they um decided to dispense with my services um which is a shame really because you know great yorkshire girl was a, was a terrific radio station but emap were terribly embarrassed because it was listened to by old people and they don't want old people listening they just want the young funky trendies who are going to spend money and so they closed down great yorkshire gold and launched magic Magic. The big easy, the big easy. Do you remember that, John? <laughs> well, I do. Um, well, this is this is where our uh, our careers kind of kind of meet because you, do you then move on to Magic Eleven Sixty One from no, there? No no no, 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 no. So I I, I then go back to um, because I uh, they got rid of me at Great Yorkshire Gold uh, as uh, you know the program director there, and then. Um, went through uh, not a good time personally. I was suffering from depression and all, all those kinds of things. And I I managed to get um, some overnight shifts at Metro uh, and also Hart in Birmingham. Right. So I was living in Stamford Bridge, New York, at this time. So I was driving up to do an overnight show at Metro. And then I remember driving from Metro down to Birmingham to do maybe a Saturday afternoon show. 
Wow. And and then I was doing this this sort of loop, you know, um, and and doing doing overnights at heart as well. And I remember they used to have a thing called the the thirty minutes nonstop music marathon or something like that. Yeah. So uh, I, I used to use this opportunity to have a kip outside of the city. <laughs> Until one, you know, the inevitable. Until one day, the silence detector, and uh, you know, I'd uh, I'd overslept by about an hour and a half. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was that was a funny situation because a a guy called Paul Fairburn uh, ran Hart, and uh, he's a nice nice fella. Um, But I, I remember. Uh, I remember John Myers recommending me to Paul to uh, to take over the breakfast show at Radio Air. Um, and this was just after the Sony thing at, at, uh, at Signal. Um, and I, th- I think I might have still been at Signal or I might have, I, whatever it was anyway. But uh, Paul Fairburn called me and said, um, we're looking for a breakfast show presenter at Radio Air. Uh, your name has come highly recommended from John Myers. And I said, oh, that's very kind of him. Uh, I'd known John. I'd met him a you know, few times and we, we got on well. I think he'd offered me, that's right, he'd offered me a job at Red Rose when I was still at Signal and I turned him down because uh, uh, I was on breakfast, but he wanted me to come and do evenings and I kind of thought it was a bit of a, you know, a, a backward step really. Um, but we, you know, we kept in touch when he went up to CFM in Carlisle. Um and so uh, I got the call from Paul, and and uh, he said, uh, "Do you have a tape?" I said, "Well, I've got I've got the one that I would have sent to John." Um, and and uh, so he sent it. So I sent it to him, and then a few days later, he called and said, mm, "Just to let you know, we won't be taking this any further." I said, oh, "Okay, fair enough." Is there any particular reason why? He said, "Well, um, y- y- your vowel sounds are very northern." I said, well, what do you mean? Very, he said, well, you know, you say bath and path. I said, well, yeah. Uh, he said, well, I, I want my presenters to to say bath and path. I said, well, in Leeds. I don't think anyone speaks like that in Leeds. <laughs> but anyway, so we that didn't come to anything. And then, you know, uh, the, 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 getting the phone call from Paul, I sent him a you know, tape in desperation, I think, uh, because I was out of work after what happened at Great Yorkshire Gold. And he again, he called, he said, Paul, I think we've spoken before, haven't we? I said, yes, we have. You remember? He said, yes. Uh, he said, have you started speaking properly yet? Joking. <laughs> 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 said, I still need people to say bath and path. I said, well, I suppose I could do it. You know, I'll have a go. And uh, he said, well, look, no, uh, seriously, he said, I, I, I don't think that we we can uh, offer you anything. And uh, you know, my heart sank, literally, heart sank. And then uh, about half an hour later, he called and said, uh, ignore what I've just said. Can you do a few overnights for us? <laughs> so I did. Wow. Uh, and I still said, bath and path. <laughs> <laughs> it was a technical problem. You heard something on there you shouldn't have done. Oh, yeah. So from Hart, doing just the odd stuff, um, you remember a wonderful guy called Tim Gibson, yes. who uh, was very um, you know involved in, uh, in Viking back in the early days, but also Tim had a, a business called Adventures in Radio, and Tim would have been the, the guy who used to take people all over the world to do programs from, say, Disney or 
um, uh, you know, Australia, whatever you know, whatever it was, um, and 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 people gone on a on a on a bender on a freebie, you know, to do their program. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and Tim and I were very good friends, and he he called me and said, "There's uh, GWR are relaunching their Classic Gold uh, service, their AM service, and they're re- going to rebrand it as as, as Classic Gold. Uh, they're looking for a head of music, and I've put your name forward." So I met up with Jaina Rangooni, a wonderful New Zealand lady who was the program director, and uh, got on with her. And she gave me the job of um, uh, head of music, but also um, evening show presenter as well. Now, Classic Gold was a network of all the AM radio stations, uh, AM services that uh, GWR would have had. Um, so uh, I think there was about, say, say 10. 10 radio stations in all. And Classic Gold was uh, was made up of uh, the uh, old Radio 1 brigade. So we had uh, DLT, Paul Burnett, uh, Simon Bates, Mike Reed was on there, David Hamilton doing uh, bits and bobs as well. So, you know, for me, who grew up listening to Radio 1, this was um, working with my boyhood heroes here. Uh, so I, I, I did that for a while. Then uh, I ended up in hospital. So not not as a result of working at Classic Gold, <laughs> but as a result of uh, of a, a ski injury that I sustained, and I had to have um, knee reconstruction surgery. Um, and so I ended up in Stoke Mandeville Hospital, and I had the surgery done. But I still had my house in York, and I said to Jaina, "Would it be possible uh, if I had a studio built?" in my garage in York that I could do the programs for Classic Gold um, while I was convalescing. So, you know, I wouldn't be able to drive or even walk for for three months. And she agreed. Uh, Despite all the criticisms that leveled at at GWR, they were uh, very forward thinking in terms of technology. Um, You know, I suppose... uh, that would that would be a double edged thing in a way because of course you know they were the 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 forerunners of uh, of networking yeah uh, and so lots of people would have lost their jobs as a result of of all this networking which obviously not not a good thing um, so I I had this studio built at uh, at my house and then I think they might have just launched uh, Magic Eleven Sixty One and Nick Wright was doing the breakfast show. And they were looking for someone to do uh, weekend breakfast. So in addition to doing classic gold evenings, I was doing uh, weekend breakfast on Magic 1161. So, you know, it's uh, burning the candle at both ends. I was going to say, <laughs> incredible. But, and uh, were you doing initially Magic 1161? Was that from your garage in York? Yeah. Uh, no, I didn't do that from, from the garage. I was driving into right, to, okay. to Hull to do that. Um you know, uh, despite everything, you know, the, 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 I don't think the technology was in place um, in those days. So we're talking, uh, is he referring to his CV? I think that would be about 1999 yeah. when I was doing uh, Magic as well. So uh, so, so what, you you doing weekends. So I yeah. remember you doing breakfast on Magic 1161. Yeah, I did. And so Nick Wright, uh, I think... Think Nick, or was it Steve Jordan? No, Steve Jordan was doing breakfast after Nick Wright left, I think. Um, and Steve Steve left to go to um, 
one of the John Myers stations in Nottingham, and I forget what it was called now. I think Century. To, was it Century? That was it, yeah. yeah. Oh, it was Century, I think it was. Um, and so I, uh, I, I got the gig there on uh, breakfast, and I, th- I can't remember who the programme director was. I think it might have been uh, Andrew Robson, who you know lived just around the corner from me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A wonderful man, and um, you know one of my best friends back in the day. Um, so yeah, I got the the full time breakfast uh, gig, and I was doing. Uh, so then I was only doing weekends on Classic Gold. Um, so the tables are sort of reversed, I suppose. You know, it's full time at Magic Eleven Sixty One, but just part time then at uh, a Classic Gold. Um, but also, you see, I don't know if you have got this one. Have you got the Minster Network on your your no, list we there? Have. We have. <laughs> <laughs> the only reason that I've, I've had to write all these down, John. Yeah, but the, uh, do you know what it is, Paul? I'm being genuinely honest here. It's because you haven't got an ego and there isn't a website at paulcarrington.com that we could find, certainly, where you list all your stations. No, there isn't. And, you know, uh, you try to keep it secret, you know, mainly to avoid the inland revenue. Um. <laughs> can, can I just, I, I just want to talk about when I when I first started at Viking and you you were doing breakfast on, on Magic 1161. And I, you know... I, there were some incredible presenters there and I, I, I was in awe of all of you because I'd listened to both stations, you know, growing up. And I, I remember walking in and they used to alternate. So it was Viking and Magic on in the reception. Mm. And, and and you were on breakfast and it's it's difficult to talk about this because we're talking about a disgraced person that, that, that not many people talk about anymore, but you can do, or you did the ultimate impression of that said person. I think we all know who we're talking about. Ah, uh, yes. And yeah. I, 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 I was in, I was in the reception and I was listening to your show and it would, as a listener, it was as if this disgraced person was on the telephone and you were talking to him. And I remember saying to somebody in the office, how 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 is he doing that if he hasn't got the actual pers- person on, on the phone? And it was because you had this skill where you would interview said disgraced person on the phone. You'd put the phone down, put the mic up, do yourself, and then go back to the... T- it was just incredible, Paul. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you, John. And uh, it's, it's I'd um, forgotten all about that technique. And um, it's one that I used uh, quite regularly, um, not just for this said disgraced person. So let, we can use another alternative. Let's say Damon Average. Yeah. So uh, I'd, um, I'd, 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 and this is this is back in the day where there was no delay on the the phones. You know, so you could speak in real time and not have any kind of uh, delay effect. So yeah, I would. Um, I'd phone myself up on the studio, so on the Studio XD, and I'd I'd put myself through to the desk with the phone fader up, but I would ride the mic fader and and have conversations with myself, you know, depending on who this person was that I was pretending to be. <laughs> you know, so it would be, you know, say, hello, hello, darling, it's Sir Damon Average here. Hello, Paul, darling. Uh, Damon, you know, um, but yes, I, I I I remember I was quite pleased with that little trick. <laughs> See, Paul, genuinely, I was I was blown away by that. I thought it was just incredible. So, so I've never forgotten it to this day. I, I always tell people about Paul Carrance and you, of course, doing this technique, and everyone's like, "That's incredible! It's brilliant!" Yeah, it, I, to be you know, I I was quite pleased with that one because uh, I I don't think I'd unlike everything else in my career, I don't think I'd stolen that from anyone else. <laughs> I think that was original. To to me, to for doing that, 
but uh, someone else is probably going to come forward and say, no, I think you'll find that such and such a body did it before you. <laughs> well, I mean, I certainly tried to steal it, but it's, I mean, it is difficult to do. It sounds a lot easier than it actually is. It is. So, I remember when I was at Radio Leeds and uh, Joe Maiden, uh, who was the gardener, he was a huge fan of Dave Medna Everidge and, um, and I used to do the the, the, the Sunday morning. Um, that's right. Uh, Joe and Tim would have been on doing the gardening program. So Tim was the presenter. Joe was the um, the, the gardening expert. And we do a little two way just to say what's coming up on the program after uh, eleven o'clock today. And of course, it was the request show. And uh, I used to do the, the voices and impressions for them. And uh, and Joe says, uh, "How's how's my how's my friend Dave Medna?" Well, let's get her on the phone, shall we, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> you know, having this this sort of three-way conversation. <laughs> this look on his face is, how the hell are you doing that? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. This is a pure skill. So then look, we'll move on, Paul, because you go to, to Magic in Leeds. You do breakfast there. Yeah, um, Leeds, one of my favourite cities. I love Leeds. You take over the breakfast show after the... The, the sad passing of Peter Tate as well. So uh, yes, uh, no, they they were big shoes to fill. Um, now Stuart Baldwin, who was, yes. uh, uh, were you were you there when? Yeah, uh, he was he was my first there. Well, Andy Robson was my first boss, but he never spoke to me. So Stuart was his deputy, <laughs> and he was he was great. No, uh, Andy, um, he obviously liked you if he didn't speak to you. <laughs> do you remember Dalit that we used to have the playout system? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. I remember Dalit running on an old compact 486, you know, which was as slow as an asthmatic snail. You know, <laughs> it was, but, you know, you, you'd, you'd press a, a, a button on the, the keyboard and then you'd have to wait four or five years for the, uh, the keyboard, the, the computer to respond to your request. And uh, I was having no, I, I, uh, none of this. And I was thinking, oh, for fuck's sake, what the, Jesus, what the crap have they given us here? <laughs> and I just remember we were doing a thing called Don't Say Hello on Magic 1161. And there was uh, a big box in the studio with all the entries. And I just had one of my, uh, my, my um, rants. And I ended up kicking this box of the Don't Say Hello entries. And... The, the, the all these these entries just flew up in the air and started you know falling like snowflakes ever so gently down to the ground just as Robson came into the studio door and uh, opened the door and they and he said uh, everything all right no turned and walked away I will see you later. <laughs> <laughs> so yes if, if if Andrew didn't speak to you he liked you <laughs> oh that's good to know although when I was working at the BBC before I quit uh, radio I, I went on a training course and there he was 23 years on his face looking at me and I I said Andy you're going to have to speak to me now <laughs> I, I will <laughs> hey, how are you how are you Tom <laughs> 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 so Andrew would have been the program director and then Stuart took over. So Stuart then went to um, Radio Air as the program director. So I would still be on Magic 1161 at this stage. And Stuart called and said, um, you've heard about Peter? And I said, yes, it's terrible, isn't it? He said, yeah, um, do you want to meet up? 
so we uh, we met up, uh, and and in fact, it was on the day of Peter's funeral that we met up. And I said, "This is slightly inappropriate, uh, Stuart, isn't it?" He said, "Well, not really." He said, "Because you know, we can we can meet up without anyone seeing, because obviously people were at, uh, at Peter's funeral paying their respects." He said. Uh, I'd like to offer you the the, the job of, uh, of of Peter's replacement. Now, Peter hadn't been on air, I think, maybe for about a year. You know, he, he was terribly ill and um, had a brain tumour. Um, and, you know, uh, and I said, well, um, I'd feel, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable about this, Stuart, if I'm honest with you. I said, it, you know, people would be accusing me of, you know, being opportunistic, of, you know, filling a dead man's shoes, essentially. Yeah. Um, and he said, look, Paul, he said, life goes on. He said, uh, someone is going to get the gig and I'd like it to be you. I said, think about it and and, and let's chat further if, if it is something that we, we can move forward on. So I I kind of, you know, thought about it and um, – and then thought, well, yeah, you know, you're right. And he was saying, you know, Peter's not been on air for such a while, and you know, it's it's not as though, um, you know, he's been sacked or or anything like that. So anyway, I took over, and I had the the, the best time there in Leeds at Magic Eight Two Eight. It was uh, a, a wonderful station, and I think we either vied for um, uh, popularity between Magic and and uh, the other uh, Radio Air. Radio Air, yeah, yeah. Um. And I and I th- I think at one point Magic Eight to Eight beat Radio Air um, in terms of uh, audience figures. And again, I'm sure will someone come and correct me? No, I, 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 I think you'll find a previous guest on Crunch and Roll, Warren Moore, will, who, who's at Radio Air, I believe. Uh, Warren, yes, wonderful Warren. Yeah, he's a, he's a top man, but he he talked about the the, the quite depressing time when uh, AM took over FM. Um, so you're right, yeah. And, and that was you, was it, Paul? No, no. To be fair, I, well, see, I'm not sure. Uh, I, 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 uh, I wouldn't lay claim to um, to any glory in that respect. But I know that uh, Pete certainly, um, Peter was was hugely popular and did a, a great show. Uh, magic Eight Two Eight, of course, was the heritage station in terms of the the Magic Network. You know, bear in mind that uh, Viking we had it was Great Yorkshire Gold before becoming Magic. Uh, Magic Eight to Eight had always been Magic Eight to Eight since the the split of Radio Air, uh, their uh, AM and FM frequencies, um, and so it was a, a well established and much loved station. Um, but then they tried to destroy it again by just making it uh, the Big Easy, you know. And uh, oh, jeez, <laughs> it was just it was not a good move as uh, as far as I would be concerned. But um, you know, uh, uh, but so I, I I took over, and I think at this stage we might have gone back to being more of a greatest hits format rather than um, let's slash your wrists and send you all to sleep um, format. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I did breakfast for five years, and it was a wonderful station. Great, you know, again, you talk about the people, for example, in Stoke on Trent, and and you know how connected and uh, how much love the station is, and it, it was absolutely adored. And I remember we used to. Uh, have listener nights, and um, uh, I remember one occasion where we we uh, we had a very good relationship with GNER, you know, the the rail network, and um, they laid on a train for us, just a, a train just for the Magic Eight to Eight listeners, 
Um, we took the the, the the listeners to London. So we had our very own train. <laughs> How many radio stations could boast that? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I do want to talk about the, the, the next move because you... you, you for the first time, I believe, you, you moved to the dark side and you go go and work for the BBC, Paul. Now, Stuart had moved on by this stage. I th- No, he hadn't. Stuart was still there. Um, and uh, we had a, an MD who took over and we didn't get on. Right, okay. We, d- we didn't see eye to eye at all. And uh, this person made it very clear that, you know, this person thought that I was you know, crap, basically. And, you know, even though the audience figures were consistently good, there was, there was I don't know what it was. Uh, there was a, oh, clearly a personality clash. Uh, Stuart remained supportive. And, you know, we, we had a great, uh, I had a great re- working relationship with Stuart. And, um, but then uh, Phil Roberts, I don't know if you know the name Phil Roberts. I do, yeah, yeah. Phil, I would have known from uh, his days at MFM, uh, March of Sound. And Phil got the job of uh, editor, they call him, at uh, the BBC. So he's the editor, programme controller, if you like, at BBC Radio Leeds. And I just dropped Phil a line one day to say, congratulations on the gig. Um, Fantastic news. Well done. And uh, he replied saying, "Uh, let's meet up for lunch. I'll show you around the new building. Because they just moved to this this posh new building. Um, And I, and I, and I, I met up with him. And he gave me the guided tour and he said, you know, you'd really like it here. Mm. I said, oh, I'm not, I'm not after a, a, a job, said he'd lying through his teeth, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he said, no, you, you'd, you'd love it here because we were, they were trying to change from being sort of a radio for um, you know, about lost dogs and people on the phone moaning about cracks in the pavement to making it more of a sort of commercial radio entertainment format. So uh, he said, "Well, look, you have a think. You know, if there's uh, if you if you want to join us, uh, I'd I'd be very interested in, in talking to you." And so I had a little think, and I thought, "Well, they're, 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 the BBC, it's the BBC. They're not going to come, you know, knocking every day." And so uh, I uh, I called him and said, uh, "Is were you serious about what you were saying?" He said, "Yeah, absolutely. Are you interested?" I said, "Yeah, I'd I'd, I'd love to." Um. He said, what show do you want? I said, well, <laughs> what's on offer? <laughs> so he said, well, you know, we're looking at making changes to the afternoons. Um, and I said, well, that would suit me after, uh, you know, getting up at uh, <laughs> half past three in the morning all these years. Uh, and uh, and so I um, I remember saying to Stuart, uh, Stuart Baldwin, um, and he said, ah, it's contract renewal time soon. Um, uh, we just need to talk about your new contract. And I said, ah, he said, assuming that you want to sign with us. I said, well, I've had a call from the BBC. Um, so anyway, uh, I think I had another three months to to run on the contract. And uh, and so I, after that, after the contract ran, uh, ran out, I joined BBC Radio Leeds. In the meantime, Phil had been promoted to, uh, I think he went over to Liverpool. So even before I started at Radio Leeds, Phil had buggered off. Um, Helen Thomas, who was the HLRP, in other words, the head of regions uh, for the BBC Yorkshire, uh, called me and said, look, uh, whatever you've agreed with Phil, you know, it's, it's all still 
uh, all systems go as far as we're concerned. Now, the, the funny thing is, uh, Helen uh, used to read the news for me on uh, Minster FM. I oh, wow! And and, uh, and and but she used to uh, drive into Leeds to do the bulletin from Yorkshire Television because we had a contract to uh, with Yorkshire Television to supply the the, the news. And then when this came up to it was coming up to uh, an end, uh, I said to her, "What about if we created a head of news position for you?" At, uh, at Minster in Dunnington. And she was living literally just two or three minutes drive away. Uh, and so, you know, it's a bit of a no-brainer for her to say, well, yeah, absolutely. So my, one of my claims to fame, that giving, giving Helen Thomas her, her her job there at Minster FM. So Helen called me and said, look, this is this is all still, whatever you've agreed with, Phil, is, is fine. It's, it's going to go ahead, blah, 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 blah. Uh, so then I, I, I met up with the... Um, Phil, it wouldn't be his replacement because I think he was just acting uh, editor. And I remember uh, being introduced to my producer, Katie, who is wonderful. I absolutely adore her and she is one of my best friends. And we got on like a house on fire. But I remember this guy saying three of us need to meet up uh, to talk about the the program. And... um, and he just looked at me and said, so what can a commercial radio disc jockey bring to the BBC? Good I thought, time. oh, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> End up your own fucking ass. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, he, he made it very clear with just those, you know, that comment that uh, I wasn't what he was looking for at all. Yeah. Yeah. So during my uh, short stay at Radio Leeds, I think it was only there for about five years. I can't remember now. I might not have even been that. I think I worked for five or six different editors. Yeah. Uh, three hated me, two loved me. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, at contract renewal time, the one who hated me said, we're not going to take this any further. You know, Because um, I, th- I think the BBC were coming under scrutiny to, you know, to make costs cuts and and everything um and even though the 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 audience figures were good you see when phil hired me phil roberts he gave me the option of going on staff or being a uh a a contract service provider so what you used to have to do you'd have to set up your own limited company as a production company and supply yourself as the uh the, the the product and of course, you know, uh, I because I was I was doing Asda FM live as well. You were, yes, which arguably is probably <laughs> the biggest radio station in the country. But yeah, it was, on. and because I didn't want to lose the the Asda FM gig, uh, I I said, well, you know, I prefer not to go on staff. And of course, you know, if I'd have gone on staff, then I might even still be there now. Hmm. I'm not quite sure if that would be yeah. a good thing. <laughs> so I ended up uh, only a few years there at uh, at the BBC, uh, which was a shame because, as I said, the program seemed to be very popular. And um, the uh, the person who released me, you know, wouldn't renew my my contract. Was you know making the excuses that they needed to make cutbacks. And da, 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 da. I remember her saying, uh, "I want my uh, afternoon show to be." Uh, I just imagine myself. Curling up on the sofa with a latte, I think this is Leeds for Christ's sake. You know that's Do you know who listens to this radio station? The, the, these people who you you you're fabricating it—they do not exist. I know who the audience is. You know they're not the twenty-something metropolitan types. They are the the salt and of the earth. They are the people who you know they're over fifties and that uh, they absolutely love this radio station. 
they don't have a plasma television in every single room in the house. They they don't curl up for a latte and read the Guardian, you know. Uh, so anyway, we we didn't we didn't get on. We didn't get see eye to eye. So then, from BBC Radio Leeds, it was back into commercial radio to Pulse Two, yeah, in Bradford. And, uh, and, and, and Pulse Two, Pulse One, you know, both fantastic radio stations. Did did you enjoy your time? Because you were there for for a, for some time. Yeah, I, Pulse Two. To, to be fair, you know, it, Pulse Two, I absolutely adored. Um, and there was some you know, some wonderful people, uh, people like Jackie Blay, Chris Johnson, uh, Milo. Of course, would be later yeah, on yeah. Uh, FM. Uh, Paul Foster was there. Uh, Debbie Lindley would be on breakfast with Paul uh, when I was on breakfast on uh, on Pulse Two. Yeah, and, and I think I did breakfast for just a, uh, maybe two or three years, and then I see I, see, I was still living in uh, Malton, and so the the drive from Malton um, over to Bradford. You know, it meant that I was getting up at half past three, four o'clock in the morning. And I, I remember, you know, so many occasions, I was the one who was clearing the path for the snowplow, you know, <laughs> the, the depths of winter. And think, what's that What's that orange light flashing behind me as I'm going down the A64, <laughs> thinking, where is the road? I'm sure there's, there used to be a road here. And it was the, the snowplow, you know, beckoning me to get out of the way. <laughs> So yeah, and then uh, my 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 sort of last stint at Pulse Two was um, was doing afternoons, and again the Pulse Two audience and the, were were the same as uh, the BBC Radio Leeds and Magic Eight to Eight audience in that they are the salt of the earth and they will buy into what you're doing, and I got a great reaction from the listeners at, at Pulse Two because I tried to make stars out of the people who were listening. Um, and, you know, I just, you know what it's like, John, you're right. When I, I think, first started, we didn't have the facility to record phone calls off air, you know. So, uh, and I remember, I, th- I think it was Magic 828 was the first station that I could do this on. We didn't, we couldn't do it at, at Magic 1161, I don't think. Uh, certainly none of the, the previous stations. And so I'd I'd, uh, I'd set the I'd set Cool Edit Pro recording from six o'clock in the morning, and I'd just been answering the phones and just chit chatting to people. And you know, some of the stuff that they were coming out with was was radio gold. And I'd just put this stuff on air, you know, I'd uh, clip thirty seconds of it and just pop it out. You know, who's calling us this morning? Hello, I am Paul. And they'd, they'd come up with this random. I've just got my head stuck in the freezer. Sorry, Paul. And there's <laughs> all these this random stuff. Uh, and and uh, and and so I you know I I loved the interaction with uh, with the listeners on um, Pulse Two especially and Magic Eight to Eight BBC Radio Leeds you kind of uh, you're protected from the great unwashed in that of course you have the producer who would field <laughs> all the calls yeah yeah um, and uh, you know you you and then the you know, they 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 put you th- uh, the call through on air, and the moment was gone. You know, because they'd said what they had to say the, to the producer, and so yeah. you know, you, you you it would it's very diluted. You know, they end up saying things like, "As I was just saying to your producer, no, I want yeah. you to just say that to me." Yeah, 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 yeah. So I know exactly um, what you mean. I know exactly. And 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 now you're in Ireland. You you've moved to Ireland. 
Yes, uh, relocated. So back in, uh, um, I think, mid-2016, I saw not the writing on the wall as such, but I saw that radio was going in a direction that I didn't feel there would be, I would be part of the journey, I suppose, really. And um, it became apparent that social media was, uh, was the all-important thing. And whatever came out of the loudspeaker was playing second fiddle to you know, um, to social media. And, you know, I thought, well, this is not what I got into radio for. I didn't get into radio to do social media. And, you know, and I know that sounds like a sort of, uh, you know, an old has been or whatever. And, you know, I still maintain that, uh, you know, people listen to the radio for entertainment and social media is a useful tool. It's not the be all and end all. Um, you know, so uh, I kind of decided I had to sack myself. <laughs> I said to to Tony McKenzie, um, "How much? How much notice do I need to give?" And he said, well, "What do you mean notice?" I said, "Well, I, I'm I'm going to be moving to Ireland um, because the boys had grown up, and we were kind of at a that that sort of crossroads of mm-hmm. uh, what shall we do now." And uh, I wasn't happy for the best for the last few months of uh, of being at, at Pulse Two. Um, I, I loved the program, but it was just you know just playing second fiddle really to to Pulse One as well. Um, and I, he said, "Well, what's your contract?" I said, "Well, I don't have a contract." I said, "You don't have a contract?" I said, uh, "No, no, I, I didn't sign it." Oh well, uh, when do you want to go? I said, "Well, uh, you know, three months is that okay?" Uh, yeah, you sure? So I uh, ended up doing a, a three months notice period. Did you like my Tony McKenzie impression there? It sounded more like. Ro- it sounded a bit more like Roland Rett, didn't it, Rett fans? So, yeah, and uh, so I, I finished at, uh, at Pulse 2, and then uh, Caroline and I, my, my wife, we set about the task of finding somewhere uh, in Ireland to live because uh, she, Caroline, is, is Irish. Now we'd be we'd been coming over, you know, uh, several times a year uh, for many years, and I, I love it in Ireland. I, it's it's a wonderful place and lovely people. Uh, so I said, yeah, I'd love it. So we made the move, and um, I remember chatting to uh, Roy Roy Martin uh, and uh, and Stuart. Um, and Stuart says to me, uh, "So, are you going to be doing any uh, any radio when you go to Ireland?" I said, "I wouldn't have thought so. I wouldn't have thought that uh, an English voice would go down terribly well on uh, an Irish radio station." They said, oh, "Well, there's a few people. Uh, speak to Roy." So um, I got in touch with Roy, and uh, Roy says, "Well, where are you moving to?" I said, uh, "County Roscommon." He said, "Oh, yes, that's the station called Shannon Side over there. Um, I'll, I'll uh, introduce you to the program director, Martin Howard." Amazing. So within minutes, Martin was messaging me, when are you moving over? So um, let me know when you're over and we'll, we'll meet up. Uh, so we spent a few months renovating the house that we're living in. And then uh, I met up with him and uh, we got on like a house on fire. And um, that was February 2017 when I first started at Shannon Side. And uh, I, uh, I present the Country and Irish uh, Music Show which is the, again, you know, an English gobshite presenting Irish and country music. <laughs> See, country and Irish, John, is a genre of music. 
you know, it's 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 country music with Irish people. Okay. <laughs> so so and it, and it is the the most popular music format in Ireland. Country music is huge over here. Do you know what, Paul? Just, I mean, we, we've been talking for for an hour and a half Too long. now. I'm sorry no, no, about this. No, you you no, need to no, edit no. this terrible. No, 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 Paul. Paul, <laughs> it, honestly, I've sat here and just uh, and listened to the professor talk about his career, and, and it, it genuinely is. It's been wonderful. And I just, I, I just wondered. I mean, what's it like talking about that? The, the, the forty years that you've been doing radio. When you first started, how long did you think it would last? Me personally. Mm, yeah. Well, I just live my whole career thinking I'm going to get sacked the next week. Exactly. And I think most of us do. And, right. you know, and, and I think that's a good way to be. And I think that um, in a way, if you are a freelance presenter rather than a, a staff person, it keeps you hungry. It keeps you on top of your game, you know, because you, you, you think, well, what's going to happen? You know, you just try and be the best that you possibly can be all the time in the hope that uh, your contract is going to be renewed. So when I started at uh, at Piccadilly, you know, I didn't imagine that it would le- that I'd be there for whatever it was eight nine years. I didn't think that it would lead to doing afternoon drive on Key One Hundred Three, and I didn't think that it would lead to this funster creation that um, you know people still get in touch with me about today. You know about uh, the the ghost stories and all that kind of thing. So yeah, I, uh, I I I kind of look back and think how lucky I was to get away with doing what I did with so little talent. And I think the 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 old adage it's 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 who you know, it's what you know, blah 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 blah. And it's a ninety nine percent luck, but one percent talent. And I think that I've had so much luck, which has more than compensated for any lack of talent. I've always been one of these people, John, who whose enthusiasm far outweighs his abilities you know if someone says you can't do something i'll you know try extra hard to 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 prove them wrong you know at school for example i was always the one who would have to try just a little bit harder than everyone else just to to keep up so yeah I, i would look back and say how how lucky and fortunate i was and and still to be on air uh doing it in in a a foreign country and the audience figures continue to 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 rise uh i was given an award a few months ago for outstanding contribution to irish country music amazing so i seem to have been um embraced uh or certainly accepted anyway into into the culture over here and it's it's you know the the, the people are wonderful and it's a, it's a terrific radio station to work for and it reminds me a lot of commercial radio uh, uh Back in, you know, when I first started, in fact, it's rather like coming full circle in that we used to call them full service radio stations, the Vikings, the Piccadillys, the Metros, the Radio Airs, in that there was something for everyone. You know, you weren't just a, a pop music station. You know, you'd, you'd, you'd have uh, specialist music, you'd have magazine shows, you'd have news programs, you'd have talk shows. And uh, and that's what it is at, uh, at Shannon Side Northern Sound. You know, there's the... Uh, the talk show, the the pop, the pop show, <laughs> playing the, the the current hits of the day, <laughs> and uh, and you know me doing the uh, Irish and country music show, which uh, you know it's 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 it, it's good crack. Crack, I love it. Um, I don't love crack because that sounds wrong. But uh, I was on about the Irish. <laughs> well, look, do you know, um, Paul? Thank you 
so much for being on Crunch and Roll. I genuinely, it's been incredible to be in your company for this this amount of time. I don't think we've ever really sat down and, and, and talked about your career, you know, as we have done. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. I, I always ask my guests, you know, who would you like to hear on an episode of Crunch and Roll from, from our industry? Well, there are so many. You know, uh, say say for example, Timmy Mallet, who would be my uh, my inspiration back in the Piccadilly days, but also Phil Wood, who is another Piccadilly legend, who is the single most creative person I've ever had the privilege to to work with. Um, and uh, you know, people like uh, say Chris Johnson, and in, in more recent times, uh, Chris would be such a great guest. You know, he's a such a funny, funny guy. Um, but you know, there are looking at the sort of seventeen radio stations that I've I've worked for, and that's not like, that, that's not including the kind of the the, the occasional freelance bits as well. You know, it's it would be impossible to 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 you know to to, to mention every single person, but um, those would be a few people. Bless you, Paul. Thank you so much. My pleasure, John. You've been listening to Crunch and Roll with me, Paul Carrington. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get every new episode as soon as they drop. Crunch and Roll is a 969 media production presented by John Fox and produced by Simon Bozowski. Great job with a surname, Paul. Well done. Oh, yeah.